Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I'm going to start titling the programs when I have a chance to pull together a theme. Today's theme is Size Matters. Today's program will cover how and why size matters in a wide assortment of areas. We'll talk about why size matters in cholesterol particles and bacteria. In addition, we'll have an update on CRISPR-Cas9. Let's call that one uh, the devil's in the details. We'll also have some follow-ups on two recent threads we've covered in the last few weeks insects as protein sources, and hidden viruses in the DNA that rise from hibernation and come out to cause trouble. I thought I'd start with a dive, a a sort of update on cholesterol particles and HDL in particular. We've covered this a lot in uh, less detail, but there's been some really new testing and new resources available on the subject of high-density lipoprotein. I thought it would probably be worth revisiting it. So first of all, let's talk about cholesterol. When you get your cholesterol test uh, back from the doctor, depending upon which lipid panel you've got, and most commonly you have this very basic lipid panel that gives you a total cholesterol, an HDL cholesterol, which is not broken down by sizes, a uh, LDL cholesterol, which is actually calculated, not in fact measured, and a triglyceride number. And this is useful somewhat. You can also look at the cholesterol to HDL ratio, which is one of the pitfalls, I think, that many doctors are falling into or tripping over more accurately, in that under certain circumstances, that cholesterol HDL ratio is extremely misleading. So we're going to get into that a little bit in the next minute or two. First of all, when you talk about these two things. What does the HD and the LD stand for? Well, high-density lipoprotein means that it's got a high density on MRI, so it's packed with a lot of stuff. Low-density means exactly the opposite. It has It's less packed with stuff. And the way I like to think of it is that LDL represents particles that are coming, well, essentially they're coming from what you ate. They're coming from food, from triglycerides. Triglycerides get converted and packaged into these low-density lipoproteins, and the LDLs are basically going out there to be uh, to serve as food to be burned and uh, serve as structural material. But they're also not just one size, and the size of the LDL particles is very, very important. The smallest LDL particles are small enough to get into the arteries. If they also get oxidized, that is to say they develop like a static charge, they will be looked at by the immune system as a bacteria, as as a toxin, and the immune system will try to destroy them by eating them. The cells that do that are the big macrophages, and as they migrate to the area where these small particles have gotten in, these small charged particles have gotten in under the inner lining of the artery, they change into something called a foam cell, and the foam cells eat these small particles and then die and deposit their fat in the artery. So now these small particles have been consumed. They've been effectively digested into plaque. And that's how plaque gets started. And there's some interesting things going on as you start. Why does plaque form in a particular location? That's the area where there's injury. Where there's injury, there's going to be immune cells. And so as the as the charged small lipids float by there, the immune cells grab them, thinking that they're a foreign invader, and, depo- and end up depositing them in that area. So 
often you'll find plaque in areas of turbulent flow, areas where the blood hits a wall. Maybe it's a bifurcation where you have a a fork in the road, so to speak. And the point, the arrow point of the artery where that fork is, is where you'll tend to start forming plaque. Another thing that increases the amount of plaque is high blood pressure. And that's because the force of the blood hitting the walls is enough to kind of pull, peel back the skin. As as one gets older, you probably, and even if you're young, if, if you hit hard enough, you can peel back a flap of skin just from the, the injury. Well, think of that happening in an artery. The healing of that involves the macrophages and it involves the immune system. And so if you repeatedly hit that area, you're going to get lots of macrophages, lots of foam cells, lots of plaque. How much plaque? Well, that depends on how many small LDL particles. Large LDL particles don't trigger the immune system, so they are more benign. So when a person has large LDL particles, we're less worried about them. We call that pattern A, but you won't see that on a standard cholesterol test. You will see it on uh, advanced lipid testing, which is available at Quest and all of the diagnostic labs. You don't have to get exotic to get this testing. It is, however, somewhat discouraged by our system, and I think that's because its value isn't completely understood or appreciated by the physicians, or they don't think it's necessary. Well, I beg to differ. I think it's particularly important Uh, Other factors, well, if you smoke, that irritates the arteries. It's inflammatory. So more oxidative stress, whatever small particles you've got, they're going to be carrying that charge. That's going to make them more likely to get in to the the artery wall if they're small and set off this whole process. On the back end of this process, this plaque is an area that can break open. It can peel. If it peels, the platelets jump on it, you've got a blood clot, and you're off to the races on your heart attack. So that's what we're trying to avoid, that soft, vulnerable plaque. High-density lipoprotein, on the other hand, is stuffed with cholesterol and heading back to the liver, where that cholesterol is going to be processed and used as building material and fuel. So you can think of the this whole process is something called cholesterol efflux. It gets in and it gets taken care of. But in the time that it's floating around in the bloodstream, that's where you have your risk. Now, the, the HDL is helpful up to a point. So when you have, it's not that it's so much helpful as it's an indicator that things are going well and that you're taking that cholesterol out of the bloodstream and sending it back to the liver. So in and of itself, you can consider it to be a marker of a protected state. And I think that's also a subtlety that I myself have perhaps not uh, made clear. So normal ranges for high-density cholesterol is about, in women, it's 50 to 90 milligrams per deciliter. You want it high. So in men, it's 40 to 90. If it's under 40, and particularly in a man, it's a big risk factor. But more is not better. And this is, this is where that ratio breaks down. Levels of HDL above 90 milligrams per deciliter for, uh, are not associated with further benefit, in fact, you start to see increased uh, cardiovascular disease risk. And what's going on here? Well, essentially, you only get levels above 90 when something's wrong with the process, when it's broken and the HDL is backing up in the system, not being processed by the liver. Now, there's also a measurement, rather than milligrams per deciliter, you can, always, you can also look at particle number. Particle number is available from some advanced laboratories, but it is very hard to find, and I haven't had much of a chance to use it with what's available to me from my patient's insurance. However, just for the sake of this discussion, a normal particle number or in a desirable range would be above 7,000. And again, at the upper ends, more is not necessarily better. Now, of course, we have to slice and dice it more. There are five different subspecies of HDL, which are starting from the pre, 
beta-1, which are essentially LDL particles with a different protein marker on them. These are the ones that are going to go out and grab cholesterol. And then they get progressively larger, like a balloon blowing up. And as they accumulate more cholesterol, they pass through a series of stages. The biggest particles are the larger ones, the alpha-1 particles. The larger particles are the one that go to the liver and drop off, like a dump truck, drop off the cholesterol, get it out of the bloodstream. And so this is a significant thing, having a lot, having high levels of the little HDL particles and low levels of the big HDL particles does correlate with coronary artery disease risk because there's something wrong with how your body is processing cholesterol. There are, in fact, drugs that we can use, and these drugs are... Uh, things like statins, but statins alone don't increase your HDL. A combination of niacin and statin does work. It increases you and makes you have more big HDL particles, but you can't use that in diabetics because diabetics, unfortunately, will not respond to the... Actually, their diabetes will get worse from the niacin, and this doesn't seem to work in them, probably because they have more inflammation, but we really don't understand why it doesn't work them. So uh, because it can worsen diabetes or pre-diabetes, we have to be careful with niacin. But nevertheless, in general, there are a couple of other things that are really important about HDL, and that's the other things are how inflammatory is the environment. Because there's a compound that we can measure that is available in these advanced cardiac panels. It's called myeloperoxidase. And this is a protein that is a pro-oxidant. It's made in pro-inflammatory immune cells. So when the immune system is activated, there'll be higher levels. By the way, infectious diseases like COVID definitely cause this to be excreted. You get much, much higher levels of myeloperoxidase, high sensitivity C-reactive protein when you're inflamed. And this particular prote- uh, protein has been shown to actually inactivate the HDL and the large HDL. Uh, it, it does something to them. It modifies them so that they become dysfunctional and they can't go to the liver and drop off the cholesterol. So when a person comes in, if they are having a heart attack and they have high MPO levels, that predicts an adverse outcome. That's going, that heart attack is going to be worse there's going to be more inflammation of the endothelial cells. And overall, there's an if you see that large HDL, the ApoA1 modified by MPO, it's sitting on there, that is all by itself an increased cardiovascular disease risk. There's a number of other things. C-reactive protein, everyone should be demanding their doctor check that. High-sensitivity C-reactive protein is a biomarker of inflammation. If your level is above one, you need to work on that. You need to go on the fish oil. You need to change your diet. You need to look at ways that you can reduce your inflammation. You need to go hunting for hidden infections like tooth decay or periodontitis or low-grade prostatitis. These, This particular compound is a marker for the fact that any small, small density LDL particles are going to get oxidized. So it tells you that oxidation is happening in your body, and if, and if you've got any LDL at all, there's the potential for that causing problem. There's a number of research tools that I'm not going to go into. Of course, the list of research tools is long. But let's talk about just uh, what we should be doing. If a, if a person has cardiovascular symptoms, if they have autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, or they have a low HDLC, which would be uh, either under 31 for women or men or over 85 for women, over, over 60 for men, we need to make sure that that HDLC is functional. That's where it gets tricky. So you need to check that HSCRP at that point. You should probably also check TNF-alpha, interleukin-1-beta, IL-6. Those will be familiar names for you because we've been talking about them a lot. They're part of the cytokine storm. And the myeloperoxidase, which we just talked about. If those are, if those are elevated, then you want to intervene. 
and you need to address the HDL status. So what do you do? Well, for one thing, start exercising, stop smoking, eat a Mediterranean diet, and then move to what Mark Houston, who's kind of my advanced functional medicine cardiology guru, says. He calls these the core bioactive compounds. Things like pomegranate polyphenols. Your dose, 30 to 300 milligrams twice a day. Quercetin, which is also great, by the way, for reducing allergic symptoms and has a great potential benefit for, uh, turned out to be kind of an anti-COVID agent in experimental studies. Uh, you heard about, that was, that's been up on my website for ages, uh, 550 to 500 milligrams. Well, not ages. It only seems like ages, two years. Can you believe it? Coming up on uh, shutdown, uh, second anniversary of, uh, what else can you take? Well, you can take lycopene, 3 to 10 milligrams twice a day, and D-alpha tocopherol. I'd probably take mixture tocopherols, 200 to 1,000 units twice a day. Why twice a day? Because you're trying to keep this stuff circulating all the time. You're trying to keep a consistent blood level and not let it drop. Other things that can be helpful, a multivitamin with phytonutrient support. That means some freeze-dried veggies in there. Uh, You can try niacin if you really want to grow that HDL and you don't have any signs of prediabetes. One of my favorites, as you know, uh, omega-3s, EPA and DHA, dose 500 to 2,000 milligrams combined of EPA and DHA a day. Look at the time. We've got time for our email this week. This from Pat in Santa Cruz. Uh, Subject CRISPR study. Hi, Dr. Don. I know you've discussed CRISPR on various occasions. I've always had my doubts about the safety of this technology. Well, Pat, you and just about everybody else knows enough about it to to understand it. Uh, Getting back to your email, I think we just don't know enough about what we're doing. Check. This article seems to further support my concern. What do you think? The study seems valid to me. As always, thanks for everything you do. Well, first of all, Pat, before I answer that, I just want to explain briefly uh, what CRISPR is. It's a gene editing tool that was adapted from naturally occurring systems in bacteria. It was uh, discovered around 2013, and I think that may be the most rapid Nobel Prize award ever in, uh, I think it would probably have been in biochemistry anyway, they got that they got that nobel prize right away because this was such a major step in nature bacteria use this as a kind of immune system they use it to chop up little fragments of viruses that want to infect them so that they'll be able to recognize them and chop them up in the future uh, in nature, it floats around in the environment of, of the cell, in the cytoplasm of the bacteria. And if it finds DNA with a very specific sequence of 20 letters, uh, like the X on a pirate map that says, dig here, well, it finds those letters. It will attach to that fragment of DNA and actually clip it. And it, if, the, if that's a virus, of course, that destroys the virus. When you put along on top of the CRISPR-Cas9, a a DNA sequence, a single-stranded sequence, the body's repair mechanism will actually, uh, the the CRISPR-Cas9 makes the cut and and inserts this sequence. You're trying to essentially cut and paste DNA. And yeah, you can. And then the natural repair mechanisms of the organism go in and do the the opposite. So for example, if there's an A, you'll get a T. If there's a G, you'll get a C. And what you end up with, the idea is it fits together like Legos and you rebuild the DNA. Well, the big problem with CRISPR has been off-target repair. That's not the article Pat sent me, but I think it's important to understand that there's off-target where that sequence is an almost match, where maybe out of the 20, you've got 18 or 19 letters but the last two are wrong. And in that circumstance, CRISPR will make a mistake and it will drop that DNA sequence right in the middle of that uh, that gene. And you can disable the gene. You could turn on a cancer gene. You can 
uh, create a structural change that could do something like sickle cell disease, all sorts of potential problems, uh, messing up the the uh, reading because these things are read in tr- in triplets. And if you put 20 things in there, obviously you're going to offset, instead of 21, right, you're going to offset the triplets. So you can do some di- some damage. And that's been the big worry with CRISPR is that we do see with CRISPR-Cas9 off-target insertions. But in studying that, researchers have been trying to reinvent CRISPR-Cas9 in a way that would be more accurate, that it wouldn't make that mistake. However, it's slowed it down to the point that it's no longer useful as an industrial process. It is possible, however, to, how should we say it, modify it in a way that allows it to be very, very accurate. And the mechanism of this is kind of fun. Remember I said it's the last two positions, 18 through 20, where CRISPR-Cas9 makes its mistake? It actually makes its decision on based on the first 17 uh, and then it grabs it, and then it has a little hook that comes down and grabs the rest of the DNA to stabilize it, and then it can do its insertion. So what recent researchers have done is they've they've got that little extra hook and they've disabled it, and instead having have it push away the DNA, unzip the sequence that's partially zipped up, and in doing that, they have created a very a much more accurate, maybe a thousand times more accurate uh, CRISPR-Cas9. Well, that would be problem solved, except for the paper that uh, Pat sent me. So we're going to basically talk about on-target issues. So this time, it's not that it's a mistaken identity. It's in the right place. But as it makes that cut on a chromosome, things happen that were surprising and unexpected in mammals and probably also in lower animals, probably doesn't happen. But what happens is super interesting. Major chromosome structural alterations. In fact, lost chromosomes, okay? Errors in mitosis that are going to be lethal. And the study was looking at mouse embryos, and they took them through the eight-cell stage, and they looked at all of the things that go wrong in CRISPR. They also, and this is what I found most fascinating, Pat, is that they had a control group that they didn't that they didn't do anything to. And some of the things that happened in that group were exactly the things that CRISPR-Cas9 was doing. It just was happening more often in cells that had been subjected to editing with the CRISPR. So 7% uh, frequency of spontaneously formed micronuclei. How that translates is that the cell division didn't go right 7% of the time. And this is just to the eight-cell stage. They also found that you could end up with the chromosome being broken. Now, chromosomes have something called a centromere, and that's what's used to pull the two copies apart. If your centromere is on one side of the cut, then you end up with a chromatid that's missing. It doesn't have the other end. I'm getting into the weeds here. But the bottom line is cells end up with unequal number of chromosomes, similar to Down syndrome. They end up with multiple copies where they should only have one because the uh, the repair mechanism goes crazy and inserts extra copies. And all of these things represent mutations that are probably, uh, well, they're scary because of the potential for creating, uh, creating a potential for cancer, creating a potential for teratogenesis. And we are so nervous about using this in humans for good reason. But Cas9 made the errors two to three times more common. But I want to point out that one in four human embryos don't make it to birth, which suggests that most of the errors that are happening here are lethal. And we also have to understand that these are in normal mouse embryos, and we're seeing all we're seeing 7% of these errors in the cells. But at this stage, these are pluripotential cells. So if you, if you take one of those cells, if it dies because it's been messed with, or because it has all of these extra copies, it doesn't really matter. Because you can take any single one of those cells and grow a mouse with it. 
And so if its cousins die off and you're left with one, that one will just keep dividing. It's the one with the clean copy because it's functional. So I think to a large extent, this is a little bit alarmist because it's the perspective of embryo research. And this is really, really quite different than any of the contemplated medical applications of CRISPR-Cas9 in somatic cells. We recently, I think, I think in 2021, it may have been earlier, had a woman with sickle cell who had her uh, stem cells, her some of her red blood cell stem cells, fixed, literally fixed, by using CRISPR-Cas9 to get rid of the sickle cell DNA and give her a good copy of hemoglobin. And now she no longer has sickle cell disease. So that taking the cells out of the body and fixing them, I think is a much more plausible way to do this. And frankly, I'm glad it's hard. I'm glad there's a lot of errors because I'm relieved that we won't be seeing genetically augmented super children of the super rich and famous anytime soon. I think we've got enough. I think the super super rich and the super famous have enough playgrounds to mess around with. I don't really want to see them altering the human germline just yet. As far as animals are concerned, Let's take, for example, the transgenic pigs projects from, for organ transplants, also using CRISPR-Cas9 to remove antigens. So not putting new stuff in, just taking stuff out. And the ones that survive uh, gestation, well, it's cruel, but factual. There will be many culls in our attempt to grow human hearts in pigs. But anything that makes it to physical maturity is highly unlikely to contain cancer or any or any mutations that are going to be deleterious. And remember, the difference between embryos and adult entities is that the cells are not pluripotent. The cells have already been committed to whatever they are. A red blood cell is going to be a red blood cell. And a skin cell is going to be a skin cell. And certain cells are a little bit pluripotent. Uh, fibroblasts, for example, in the skin can turn into squamous cells as part of the healing process. So they have to have some, uh, well, some latitude in terms of what they can do with their DNA. But it's really, really highly controlled. And as we do this, we're just scratching the surface of what's possible. But we're also not understanding how the thing is controlled and regulated in the first place. And it's my belief that there's a great deal of under-the-radar regulation going on that we don't understand. So, mucus, mucus to the rescue. This is what we're going to tell kind of this one. Early in the pandemic, you'll remember, I, I remember because I covered it, many people, myself included, fastidiously disinfected surfaces because there'd been laboratory studies predicting that SARS-CoV could easily transmit this way. Survival times, if I remember correctly, of up to 72 hours on stainless steel and plastic. Well, since our world is nothing but stainless steel and plastic, it started it started to sound like we needed to do something. Well, it turns out that the reason that didn't happen was because of mucus. Sugar-decorated proteins in mucus bind to the coronavirus and keep it from infecting cells. Basically, coronavirus that gets sneezed out and hits a surface and has a chance to desiccate dies. It can persist on the surface for week, but it's not. It's much more infectious as an airborne droplet. Typically, what happens is when someone coughs and sneezes, if they have SARS, it's going to come out coated with mucus. That mucus is got salt, lipid, DNA, some proteins, and glycans, modified sugar proteins. And there's one of those called sialic acid, which actually is something that will bind the spike protein. So if the spike protein is bound to the glycans in mucus, it can't bind to the ones on cells. It's basically the the spike protein is occupied, so it can't attack. They took droplets of virus in a growth medium that they basically supplemented with 0.1 to 5% mucins, basically what you find in nasal mucus and saliva. And the higher the mucins, the more deactivated the uh, virus was. They were significantly less infectious. And what they found was as the droplets dried, the mucins moved to the edge and concentrated there in a kind of coffee ring, pulled the virus with them. And then when they got 
pulled together by evaporation, the sialic acid glycans for the mucins just grabbed the, the virus and it deactivated the spike protein. So mucus to the rescue. And I'm wondering if that's why we have it. Maybe that's why mucus is so important to human immunity. And maybe that's why our body makes so much of it when we have a cold. Well, we've got a caller and we're going to go to our uh, caller. And please tell me your name and where you're calling from. Yes. Hello, Dr. Eileen again in Santa Cruz. Hello, Eileen. Spoke with you some several weeks ago. Have mostly tuned, been had to tune in beyond my daily things. Um, came across an interesting term for laying eggs, ovimposited. Mm-hmm. Oviposited, right. I'd never heard that before. That was fascinating. And I reread the um, in our back issue of Brain and Life, and uh, some pages I had seemingly capped, obviously. And um, sure enough, and it's uh, um, about Alzheimer's affecting women by the fact that women tend to live longer than men. Well, that's one reason. Right. Uh, the- and it also mentioned the menopause state in the midlife is associated with decline in the brain's ability to utilize glucose. Right. As its primary fuel. Well, there's an increase. Uh, yeah, there's interesting things. And also, little known fact, uh, estrogen's an anti-inflammatory. And there's a strong link between inflammation and dementia. Actually, I just pulled this article oh. since you... Before we go to the dementia, though, I want yes. to comment on the ovipositor. You know, we, mm. th- that's mainly... We use that mainly in insects. We refer oh, yeah. to them as having an ovipositor. Yeah, he was referring to cicadas. Right. But uh, yeah, that's just what they use to drop their eggs. You know, you got to put them out somehow. And you can think of men as having a sperm appositor. But we since we gestate internally, we don't need an ovipositor. Let's go back to the menopause, though. Another interesting study showed that women who had early menopause, this one just came out, uh, it comes from a massive study in England, 150,000 women who... uh, and they looked at all the different factors associated with Alzheimer's disease. And one of the strongest factors was menopause before the age of 40. Mm. It, it, gave, it caused uh, women who had menopause before the age of 40 were 35% more likely to have some, um, some kind of dementia by 65, which is quite astonishing because we don't think of 65 as an age where we have a lot of dementia. It's more, you know, late 70s and into the 80s where the numbers really start going up. But if you didn't go through menopause until 51, then you had all all groups uh, who's, you know, 52 and older, 51, they, they all had essentially the same statistical dementia risk. So something, in, so there, the loss of estrogen early, and this would include women who had a hysterectomy and had their ovaries oh, yeah. removed, oh, is yeah. a critical thing and all the more reason to go on hormone supplementation at least until the age that the average woman goes through menopause, which is 51 in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was my time for menopause. Well, you're just average, my dear. Take comfort in that. <laughs> that an yeah, increased but investment would add more than $930 million to the U.S. economy by reducing health care costs and time spent in nursing homes. Mm-hmm. How do we and do it, though? might also give women, both men and women, from experiencing Alzheimer's disease. Well, you know what, you know what they need to do? They need to exercise. That's probably the single most important thing. Trying to maintain a normal body weight. Don't get diabetes. People with diabetes get Alzheimer's, get any kind of dementia about 10 years earlier. That's, that's a really solid fact. In fact, some people call uh, dementia type 3 diabetes because of the association. Uh, get enough vitamin D. Uh, you know, don't, o- don't over drink. Don't smoke. Mm-hmm. These are all mm-hmm. things that have association with the risk of dementia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I take vitamin D. Yeah. Right, uh, but I'm a great I'm a great advocate for uh, maintaining a sensible estrogen level mm-hmm. into uh, in, into elderhood. Let's say I don't think that 
the I think with good surveillance and with good diet, a lot of the concerns about estrogen causing breast cancer are misunder were misplaced, and in recent years. Uh, the, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has backed away from their their somewhat hysterical pronouncements in the early 2000s, appropriately so, because the data is there. If you, it's not so much the estrogen as other factors, and how you're including how your body detoxifies estrogen, which is critically uh, critically affected by having a healthy microbiome, which, of course, brings us back to my my favorite topic, bugs. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of bugs. Yeah, well, two more little tiny points. In All right, real quick, dear, and then, we're, then I want to get back to out, my thing. Women who worked outside the home experienced slower memory decline later in life, mm-hmm. finding that build on the other research suggesting that the mental stimulation of a job they help build cognitive resilience. Eh, yeah, I, I, no, 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 because that's correlation, yeah. not... Okay, people who le- who started to lose it left their jobs, <laughs> right? So you don't know which one, whether that's cause or effect. And so that is, right. that, is a, yeah, that is a logical fallacy to assume that you know the direction of causality. Thank you for your call. I'm going to sign off, all right? Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to Bugs. We had an ovipositor. The next article right here is a follow-up to a story I did about insects as a protein source. This comes from a recent article, an opinion article in Trends in Plant Science. And believe me, I don't read that journal. I picked this up from Science Daily. But I like it because it's on topic. Uh, This this fellow, um, Marcel Dick, has come up with a really interesting idea of using, of creating a a sort of farm-to-table Uh, insect as food and feed production, sustainable agriculture. I love it. Basically, the leftovers from insect production, which is to say if we were growing these for food, come in two forms. You've got exuviae, which which are the exoskeletons left behind after molting, uh, and frass, which is basically insect poop. And so uh, worm castings, anyone, right? So when you take the exuviae and the frass and you put it in soil, you get better plant growth. The insect feces are rich in nitrogen. That's important for growth. And the chitin, the exoskeletons are rich in chitin. And it turns out that there are bacteria that can m- metabolize chitin, which are beneficial to, uh, to plants, making them more resistant to diseases. So essentially, it's, a, it's really easy to raise insects. You feed them the waste streams from crop farming or food production, and they then... Uh, produce bigger and bigger insects. You then grind those up and use them as flour to make things. And the leftover stuff that you don't grind, you you use to bolster crop growth. So you've got a nice round cycle. Now, the only thing missing is getting people to eat it. Now, I think our food technologists are up to the task. Listen to this. It takes 25 kilograms of grass to produce one kilogram of beef. The same amount of grass produces 10 times as much edible insect protein, almost 50% yield. 90% of the insect's body mass is uh, edible. That's part of the reason why. And these are cuisines all over the world. We need to get over our ick factor on this and start making delicious insect-based crackers, uh, insect-based cereal. Uh, It's extremely fascinating to me that the breakdown products of insects and their excretions form part of the ideal microbiome for plants. And it's just one more example. Everything has a microbiome, your eyeball, your ear, the surface of your skin. It's not just happening in the gut. But there is some interesting stuff happening in the gut. Uh, For example, did you know that in the gut... Uh, gut bacteria have sex, not just to share genes. That's been known, genes for disease resistance and stuff, that's been known for 20 years. But also to share the gene for making vitamin B12. All bacteria need vitamin B12. Most types of living cells can't function without it, but there's a competition for it. And it turns out that the bacteria, bacterioidetes, will share their DNA with other bacteria that are of different species. And the, what this DNA does, it's, uh, it's the DNA to, to help make B12. 
you see the organism just give that DNA away so that everybody can make B12. This is the bacteria that helps us break down the long starch molecules like beans and sweet potatoes and whole grains and vegetables. And if you have a diet in those, you're going to have a diet high in the bacterioides. It's also one of the bacteria that help thicken our mucus layer, making us much less vulnerable to bacterial pathogens. So good stuff going on. And it turns out competition down there in the microbiome, it's fierce. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the, I, I believe it's it's H-E-R-V-S, but it's essentially ancient, ancient viruses that have incorporated themselves into the mammalian genome. And they're in there. And when they activate, you, know, you can think of herpes as a reactivating virus. These, however, are not fully infectious. So they just sit there, and but when they do reactivate, they can prime the immune system to create autoimmune disease. And we talked about that. I think it's fascinating. The correlations with multiple sclerosis and ALS are pretty solid data. So this isn't just happening in humans. The bacteria themselves they have viruses dormant in their genome. And E. coli makes a, a molecule called colibactin, which is actually a kind of antibacterial, but it has a completely different mechanism. It doesn't directly kill the target organisms. Instead, it just somehow manages to activate the lethal viruses that are tucked away in those other bacteria's genomes. So we've known for a long time that colibactin is bad for human cells. It's been shown that the compound damages DNA and is associated with colorectal cancer. It may be that colorectal cancer is actually being caused by reactivation of a virus that has not been established. This is a pure speculation on my part. But when you start thinking about the layers upon layers of interactions and the associations, it starts to look interesting. It's also clear that the genes that drive colorectal tumor growth do have the colibactin molecular sequence in them. Those cells can make it. And I'm wondering why that's gotten into the human DNA. Of course, just like viral DNA, bacterial DNA can get into our cells. And how much of our disease might in the future be something that could literally be wiped from our genes by an effective and very targeted and very sophisticated version of gene editing, either based on the CRISPR-Cas9 platform or some entirely new platform that develops now that we see the enormous potential this has. You know, this is the thing that I'm going to wax a little euphoric here, but this is the sort of thing that, that can come riding to our rescue as we face the incredible adaptive challenge to the species of coping with global warming, coping with some of the environmental degradations, which I may or may not get to in the next 10 minutes. But the point is, we we have to be prepared to spin on a dime and adapt, adapt faster than we've ever had to do before in evolutionary history. And we may need these tools to be able to adapt our food supply and adapt perhaps our very bodies in order to get the species through uh, to a time when the global climate change calms down, which it will. I don't think we're going to be turning into Venus anytime soon, although there's a small possibility of that. Uh, but more likely, we're going to look at you know, major changes in coastlines, major changes in the, what plants are growing and what food is available. And I'd rather not be part of a massive die-off, personally. I guess that's selfish of me, but I have to say that's how I feel. So let's talk about the largest bacterium ever discovered, a giant microbe from a mangrove which could be the missing link between single-celled organisms and cells that make up humans. Now, we've all long divided life into two groups, the prokaryotes, which are bacteria and single-celled microbes called archaea, and eukaryotes, which include everything from yeast to most kinds of multicellular life, and of course, all the parasites. So 
these are these have a nucleus. Pro, the prokaryotes don't have a nucleus. Their their DNA is floating floating around in their cytoplasm, whereas the eukaryotes package their DNA in a nucleus, uh, scrunch it down into chromosomes, and they compartmentalize their cell functions into little vesicles called organelles, and they move molecules from one compartment to another. That's how the messenger RNA gets out of the nucleus and goes into the cytoplasm and gets turned into a chain of amino acids that folds itself into a protein. So eukaryotes all share that capacity. But this cell is different. It's a a thread-like single cell that's visible to the naked eye, growing up to two centimeters, a single cell as long as a peanut and 500 times bigger than most other microbes. And it has a huge genome that's not free-floating inside the cell like all the other bacteria. No, instead, it's encased in a membrane, um, a sort of, you know, it's encased in a bubble. It's a proto-eukaryote, kind of a missing link. Uh, It's bigger than fruit flies. It's bigger than nematodes. These These are things that we do research on. And... Uh, it was discovered about 10 years ago, but it wasn't recognized until recently that it was actually a bacteria. Oliver um, Olivier Gross, a marine biologist at the University of French Antilles, uh, came across this strange organism growing as thin filaments on the surfaces of dying mangrove leaves in a local swamp. And, you know, it was like, oh, this is interesting. It's probably a blue, you know, some sort of filamentous grouping of bacteria, stacks of cells, in other words. But after staining and studying it, uh, they were able to verify that it's just one cell, which is kind of unbelievable given its size. Furthermore, inside that cell, there are two membrane sacs, one that contains all the DNA, which is cool, and it's an org- it's basically an organelle. But there's another sack in there, a big water-filled sack, which is probably the reason it can grow so big. See, bacteria we've always thought couldn't get that big. They had to be small because they eat, breathe, and get rid of toxins by diffusion of molecules uh, through the cell. And there are limits to how great a distance these molecules can travel. And if they accumulate in the cell, they're going to kill it. But then in 1999, researchers discovered a giant sulfur-eating microbe down there in the trench off of Namibia, and it's the size of a poppy seed. And what this particular bacteria had was its cellular contents. It had, it had the big balloon of water inside, and the big balloon of water essentially squished all of the functional parts of the cell uh, that were needed for physiology into the rim. So really, it was like a giant egg and only the shell was living cells. So the diffusion problem was defeated. But again, this was the side of a poppy seed, you know, a little black thing on your bagel. We're we're talking here about something the size of a peanut. And so they've named it Theo Margarita Magnifica, which I like. <laughs> I think that's a great name. And it's pretty, it's, I mentioned it had a ginormous genome. Well, the genome is huge, 11 million bases with 11,000 clearly distinguishable genes. Typically, bacteria uh, will have maybe three or 4,000 genes and 4 million bases. How does it get this big? Well, they labeled it, and it turns out that there are repeats, copy number repeats, we call them, of 5,000 copies of the same stretch of DNA. Can't I can't wait to see what that does. Nobody knows, but nothing this weird exists, if, if not for a reason. So let's talk about, in our last uh, few minutes, a cautionary tale. The problem with medical guidelines. So some years ago, international guidelines were developed to help physicians dif- diagnose cow's milk allergy. And uh, these guidelines were to help doctors figure out if babies had cow's milk allergies so they could take them off the cow's milk. And so there's two types. There's the IgE, E for emergency, hives, wheezing, sneezing, type of allergy. And then there's the non-IgE allergy. And most babies' milk allergies are of this second variety, the IgG 
Uh, by the way, I'll add that conventional medicine does not believe this is a thing in adults. I beg to differ. Uh, it happens incredibly commonly in infants, but it does not happen that commonly in adults. However, the non-IgE-mediated allergies is probably about 1% in infants in developed countries. But when you look at what these guidelines that were published in 2017 and 2019 did, it basically made the threshold for making this diagnosis so low that if your baby spit up more than twice and was a little bit fussy, it meant from the doctor's standpoint, the criteria of uh, allergy and the babies were put on formula. Well, guess what? Where'd those guidelines come from? 81% of all of the guideline authors reported a conflict of interest with formula manufacturers. And three of the nine guidelines were, you know, just like those bills that go through uh, state legislatures that are written by a think tank somewhere in Washington and then distributed as a pre-written bill. Same thing. Three of the nine guidelines were written by formula manufacturers. The whole thing was funded, promoted, spread in the interest of children, and 100% marketed by formula companies. It was pushed to pediatricians, use formula early if, if the mother comes in complaining of any of these symptoms. And I want to add that the symptoms are basically things all babies do. Vomiting, regurgitating milk, having loose or frequent stools, irritability, colic. Okay, these symptoms are so common that 38% of infants had mild to moderate symptoms at three months. And these were not consuming any cow's milk directly. And then they put the, then they put the meme in the, in the mom's head that, well, maybe the milk that you're consuming is, maybe there's enough milk protein coming through your breast milk to be causing this problem, which got the women to stop breastfeeding, which, by the way, increased formula sales. So all I'm saying is if somebody tells you that this is guideline-based, ask them who wrote the guidelines. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.